How's everyone doing? Good? Good. Well, it is a pleasure to join you and open God's Word with you this morning. We're going to be in the book of Acts today, uh, Acts chapter 16. We are uh, in our fifth week of our first ever series here at Redemption Parker uh, that we're calling Gospel-Centered, and we're just, we just want to launch out and say if we're going to be a church plan, we want to do things uh, a certain way. We want to be about the gospel. We want the gospel to define us. We want the gospel to save us. We want the gospel to shape us. And as we'll see today, we want the gospel to send us, and that all those are connected. If you're saved by the gospel, then you should be shaped by the gospel, and you are then also sent by the gospel. And so we're just trying to be as clear as possible. So as, as many of you are, are just checking out, as with any church plan, is this a place that I could wrap my life around? We, we're, we want you to say, this is what we're going to be about. And and there's many, many good churches, and we need many, many more good churches in this city and uh, across this nation. And so uh, hopefully you find somewhere where you can plug in and uh, pour yourself out into. Gospel-centered. Well, we today will be in Acts chapter 16. Actually, I'll have that uh, verse on the screen. If you have your Bible, you can start to turn there. Uh, and, and go there. But uh, we started about a year ago uh, just with some family saying, hey, let's open up our home. Let's share some meals together. Let's just get into the Word together and just say, How, what would God do uh, if we applied this to our lives? And so I don't think it was any accident that we started with the book of Acts. And we just said, Lord, um, would you do in us what you did in them? We read in the first week, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus is about to be uh, brought up into heaven to be with his Father. And he says, I'm going to send my Spirit. He says, uh, when the Spirit comes, power will come upon you and you will receive, uh, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses uh, to, in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. And we know what, what Jesus said there is true because we're here. Like it's 2017 uh, across an ocean, across a continent, across culture, across language. We are gathered here now because of what Jesus said. When the Spirit comes, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. You will be light bearers. You will be salt of the earth. You will be all these things. You will be uh, redeemed vessels to redeem people. It's an amazing thing that Jesus has entrusted us with. Uh, of course, uh, he's given us his spirit to do it, by the way. Uh, as we talk about gospel-centered multiplication, sometimes in the church we talk about, well, you've got to be Jesus to someone. And I'm just going to say up front, no, you're not Jesus. And in fact, uh, the Christian life is not just difficult, it's impossible. Only one guy was able to pull it off, and we named it after him. And so what Jesus is saying is, I want to live my life through you. I don't want you to go out there and get exhausted and try harder and say, man, I'm just, let's look busy because Jesus is coming back. No, none of that. Let's just say, Jesus, would you just fill my life? And out of the overflow of my life, would you use me? to reach my friends and neighbors and families and coworkers. And so that's what we've been seeing in the book of Acts. We, we, we had 
dove in there, and, and that's what happened. So chapter 2, uh, the Spirit comes, Pentecost happens, and just blows that thing up. Peter stands up and gives a terrible sermon, and 3,000 people come to Christ that day, and, and every day thereafter, more and more are coming. Uh, but they were staying in Jerusalem, and then uh, so by uh, persecution by people like a guy named Saul of Tarsus hits the church, and the church scatters, and the light scatters with them, and now the gospel has crossed an ethnic bridge. It's gone to the Samaritans, and uh, the church wrestles with that. Like, uh, is this okay, God? The hated Samaritans? And God's like, yes, it's okay. And then it goes even further. It goes to the pig-eating Gentiles, and uh, Peter and the church wrestle with that. Is this okay that the gospel is going out? And and, uh, God says to through Peter in a vision, in a dream. Yes, it's okay. And eventually, Paul, Saul gets rescued and redeemed, and, and he studies at a church called in Antioch because the church has moved from uh, the center of power from Jerusalem to Antioch, and Antioch becomes this church, this model for us, a church that plants churches that plants churches. And, and when we talk about gospel-centered multiplication, we always want to come back to Acts 13. We want to be a church that plants churches that plants churches. And I'll say why later, but I uh, just want to start off saying that our goal is not to grow Redemption Parker into some mega church. Our goal, uh, a win for us, is that uh, the, the, there would be a Redemption Castle Rock and a Redemption Highlands Ranch and a Redemption Denver and a Redemption Abu Dhabi and a Redemption Bangkok. And uh, if the Lord would answer our prayers, that would be an amazing thing. But again, not to make a name for ourselves, but for uh, to make Jesus famous. And so we've been studying Acts. We've been reading as many books as we can about church planning in America and uh, uh, talking to people and, go, and going to conferences and talk, seeing what organization we want to partner with. And uh, we're trying to partner with Acts 29, actually. Uh, but in that midst, we've seen that there's a lot of different ideas about what church planning is. And some of the people I met with, they've said, well, you've got to have, in Denver, Colorado, you've got to have at least 250000 if not $500,000 in the bank if you're going to pull off a church plan in Colorado. I'm like, well, we got like $2 in the bank, so is that... And they're like, no, you're, you're, you're not going to... You've got to have just the most amazing kids program because if you're you're in Parker, Colorado and people move here because they want to give their kids the best. And so if you want to be a church plant, you better be prepared to give their kids the best. I'm like, well, we got a kids room for under six. Uh, and they're like, no, that's not going to work. And, and this other guy said, hey, there's this church that's just planted in Boulder this last week with 300 people and a million dollars. I'm like, what? What is that? And uh, they're like, yeah, some mega church in the South is, is doing this. I'm like, well, praise God for that. But when I, we've been just studying the book of Acts, and, and that is a foreign concept. I mean, now, now, God uses that. In spite of ourselves, God uses us all the time. So I don't want to knock that in any way. But when I look at the book of Acts, I'm like, well, Lord, they didn't have any money in the bank, and they didn't have any buildings, and, and uh, they, they really didn't. They, they were all just spirit-filled people, and God used them. And, and so uh, we read this one book that really has become a, a, a path for us. It's called Everyday Church. It's written by Steve Timmis and Tim Chester. They, uh, they are with Acts 29, but what's unique about them is they write from the Acts 29 Europe network. And they write from the perspective saying, hey, in Europe, the church has, 
uh, has, has long since gone to the margins and uh, has lost the cultural appeal. Uh, but uh, Americans, by the way, if you haven't noticed, even in the last few years, there is a hostility turning towards the church, and, and the church is now going more and more to the margins. And maybe, America, you should start to learn from the European church rather than the w- other way around. And maybe you should start to do things like we're doing. And they just describe these things. And, and in the book, they said, what we need really is to, for all Christians to begin to think like missionaries. And then a light bulb went off. I'm like, wait a minute, I've been a missionary for 15 years. I, I can start to think like a missionary. And so what does that look like? We were, we were in Okinawa for 10 years, but then we decided we wanted to go to the Czech Republic, which just happens to be the most atheist country on the planet. Less than one half of 1% believers. So out of 200 people, you might find one Christian. And so we've moved there. And, and let me just say this, as, as, as I'm trying to convince us all to think like missionaries, first and foremost, missionaries are ordinary people. You need to understand that. I've, I've been a missionary. I've, I've spent a lot of time with missionaries. I'm still a missionary. I equip missionaries every day. That's my day job, by the way. I encourage them. But they're ordinary people. They, they sin like you and I sin. They struggle in their marriages like you and I struggle. They have financial problems. They have all the same things. The only difference is they believe the gospel. They think that God can do something in their broken lives. And so uh, they begin to pray and God burdens their hearts for uh, maybe a, a country or a people group or a city. And then, then they begin to invite their other friends and their church. Would you pray with us as we're, we're thinking about taking the gospel to this country? And so that's what we we did when we made the move from Japan to the Czech Republic, and, and we just said, hey, would you come alongside us and encourage us and pray with us? And, and so we went there, and we prayed, uh, Lord, would you uh, provide a visa for us? Would you provide a place for where we're going to live? Lord, we want to live where we can let our light shine, so would you just provide a house and, and neighbors and people of peace? And God did all that, and we moved there, and uh, when you're a missionary, you, you look at, at, at things differently. There's different things are a win for you. Uh, see, a win for us isn't that we finally get a stage and smoke machines and laser light show with an eight-piece band. That's not a win for us. That's never a win for a missionary. I've never even thought it. It never crossed my mind when we were trying to plant a church in the Czech Republic. Uh, but what was a win for us? Well, we might say our little things, but they were steps in the direction. For example, um, it was a win for us when uh, we looked at our, our news, newsletter and we struggled with the language and we, we, we just began to learn the language and culture and every day we got a new word and every day we got a new insight into the culture and the history. That was a win for us because we were crossing a bridge. That was a win. And when we got the newsletter from the town hall and we, we, we didn't understand 90% of the words but we translated it on Google Translate and it did about 50%, uh, then we were like, oh, they're having a spring cleanup day. And they're asking all the residents of this village, and we lived outside the second largest city, but in a village, we lived with about 3,000 people, and they're saying, hey, it's spring cleanup day. And we say, well, God has us here. We want to be lights here. Uh, we want to be for the city. And so we could do that. So we showed up, and uh, 
um, we see everyone grabbing bags and, and uh, some other people help translate. And they said, we're just going to go around the village and pick up all the trash. I'm like, okay, we can do that. And after we pick up the trash, after a few hours, we go in the forest and all the paths. And, and then you, you take your trash to the city, the village dump. And then you climb up the mountain. You go to the, the, the mountain village and there's a, they're, they're cooking sausage and they have lukewarm beer for you. So there you go. That was a win for us because now we're in the culture. And then we know it was a win for us because the next month newsletter, we look at it and it was a, an article about uh, spring cleaning day, but they called it International Spring Cleaning Day, Mezonarni. Euclid, Yarni Euclid is what they would say. And they're like, why is it internet? Oh, it's a picture of us. The Americans came out and then made it in an international event to clean up their village. That was a win for us. And we continued to learn language and culture. And, and sometimes uh, we were confused. Sometimes we were like, wow, we didn't know that. Like uh, I would take my daughter Hannah to her preschool. I would take her because if, if mom took her, then she would cry. But if I took her, she was okay leaving me. Uh, but um, one day I show up and uh, I'm like, well, something's going on here. It's, it's the end of April and uh, is it Halloween here? I don't know what the culture, oh, I won't get too close. I don't know what the cultural deal is with that, but uh, all the kids, all the girls are dressed up as witches and all the boys are dressed up as wizards. And I've got a picture of it here. Um, you can see my daughter on the left with a look of judgment. Um, <laughs> Like, why are all the preschoolers dressed up of witches and, and wizards? And, and you got some kid in the back that, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, uh, I go to my language teacher later that day. I'm like, what is going on? She's like, oh, I'm glad you got to experience that. It's Burning Witches Day. I'm like, well, what is that? Uh, that's, the, that's when we commemorate the time when we burned all the witches. So we have our little girls dress up like them. I'm like, okay, well, I still have some things to learn, obviously. But uh, it was still a win for us when, uh, when, when I threw, was throwing. It, actually, it was a Sunday. We had been very sick. We should have been at our church in the Czech church. We had a little tiny Czech church that we were partnering with. But uh, we were too sick. And I'm, I'm out. it was a nice spring day. I'm throwing the ball to my dog. And it bounce, takes a weird bounce and bounces over the fence. And, and my neighbor had this, this giant orchard and all these fruit trees and all these things. And I'm like, oh, here we go. I'm looking up my Google Translate again. I need my ball. Uh, <laughs> And I, and, I, and I go, and I sound like a, you know, a, a preschooler, and I'm like, prosim, uh, prosim, michka. And he starts talking to me at about a million miles per hour, and I'm like, nerozumim chesky, meaning I don't understand Czech. And uh, he just keeps talking and keeps talking. I'm like, I still don't understand Czech. Um, but then I realize, wait, he's inviting me to something. And, uh, and he's like, yeah, and I think he's inviting me to his house to come over that day. And so I go to Jennifer. I'm like, hey, I think he wants us all to come over to their house. He's like, oh, okay, we'll, we'll go over there. And, and so we're, we're not feeling that great, but uh, we go over there. And, and he's, he's showing us, and him and his wife are just talking and talking in Czech, not a word of English. And uh, they're just showing us the trees and their garden and, um, I mean, it gets, it gets worse. But uh, nonetheless, uh, that was a win for us for, for three hours when we're just like, hey, this is good. And he's like, you like beer? And, uh, 
Hutnati pivo. I'm like, pivo, that means beer. I'm like, ano, oh, yeah, yes, yes, beer. He's like, yeah, here's two beers. I'm like, oh, well, thank you. I needed, I needed one at each hand. Thank you very much. And uh, he's like, uh, my wife's like, no, don't, don't tell the rest of the story. But he's like, we make our own alcohol. Here you go. And, and I, I'm like, okay. And so we're sipping it. And the wife says to Jennifer, no, don't sip it. You top it. You top it. And uh, we're like, uh, we're missionaries. And... Uh, I go back to my, my Czech pastor. I'm like, here's what happened. He laughs. He's like, that is awesome that you drank it because now you can actually talk to them again because you would never be able to if you didn't. I was, that was a win for us. Who knew drinking beer was, would be a win for a missionary? But it was. And uh, so on the, it, it was just like, hey, if I could cross a bridge and be a light, and we had a a neighborhood barbecue, and, and all our Czech neighbors came over, and they met each other for the first time, living on the same street for years and decades, and, and, and it, we were just being light. And eventually, God did bring some to know Christ, and we left far sooner than we ever planned, but um, that missionary mindset. But even in the Czech Republic, sometimes the church can be a, a stumbling block to the mission. Um, our pastor, great pastor, he was kind of catching this vision of how are we going to reach checks? I mean, 99.5% of these people do not know Christ. How are we going to reach them? And he, he started uh, going into just neighborhoods and talking with people and befriending people. And I was at an elder meeting with him, and, and he was telling this story. He's like, we need to reach out to this community of people, this community. And he said, there are a lot of Czechs love soccer, and they play soccer, and, and uh, we, we need people in our church, if they love soccer, to just enter into there with the light of Christ and, and, and play soccer and befriend them and, and, and get to know them. And then one of the other, other elders who loves Christ but just had that mindset, this is what church is. He just said, well, well, Petra, you know, a lot of those soccer matches are on Sunday morning, so we can't reach them. And I was just thinking, well, who's going to reach them then? They're not coming to church. They're playing soccer. So who's going to carry the light of Christ into that community? And uh, the same is, is true here. If we only think of church as a building, and a program. If we only think of churches, uh, the people that are professional that get paid, they do ministry and we're spectators, then how are we going to impact this, this nation? Every year, 4,000 churches shut down in America. Only 1,500 start. A lot of that is because megachurches have taken over, but there's not one single county in the United States where uh, 10 years ago has more percentage of Christians than it does today. Four out of five churches are in, uh, have plateaued or declined. One, one organization found that, one denomination found that 80% of their people that have come to Christ, the new converts, they came to Christ in churches that were less than two years old. Now that has huge impact, implications for us. This is why we want to be a church that plants churches. We want to cast vision from day one that hopefully within the next year or two, we're, we have Redemption Castle, wherever the Lord leads. We believe that church planning, as Peter Wagner says, church planning is the best evangelism strategy on the planet. And so that's why we're planning a church. And, and so um, if we're going to do that, we, we, have to realize, we have to go by the power of the Spirit, Spirit-led, sensitive to the Spirit, and, and just be available for the Spirit to use. And He's going to use us in unique and strange ways. 
And that's why I want us to look at Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 is a church plant. A church plant happens in the book, uh, in the city of Philippi. You may recognize that, that city name from another letter in the New Testament called Philippians. That's many years down the road. But Philippi, this is the birth of the church at Philippi. And in fact, after this series, Gospel-Centered Series, we will go through the book of Philippians verse by verse. But uh, for our purposes, we're going to see how does a church get planted? Do they have 300 people and a million dollars? No, there was no such thing as dollars back then. But a church gets planted in Philippi because light bearers, in this case, Paul and Silas, go. And they, they believe that Jesus is the most valuable thing in all the universe, and they want others to know and experience him. And so they go to this city of Philippi. It's a, uh, earlier in the chapter, it's called a leading city. It's a city of commerce. It's a city of trade. It's a city where uh, the Roman roads would come through and people would come into Philippi and go off to Rome and, and Ephesus and other places. So it's an important city, as Luke tells us earlier in verse 11. But we'll pick it up in verse 13. It says, on, a, on the Sabbath day, we, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Let me just get some water here. So if you know anything about the book of Acts, you know already something's off here. See, normally when Paul would go into a city on a Sabbath day, where would he start out? Synagogue. There you go. Okay, so Paul would start where he knew the culture best, where they already had some understanding of who God was, and he would simply show them from the Hebrew Scriptures, maybe through Isaiah or Jeremiah, or so he would show them that uh, Messiah would come, Messiah would suffer, Messiah would redeem the people. But in, to, in order to have a synagogue in a city, you had to have at least 10 adult Jewish men. And apparently, Philippi was such a pagan city uh, that they didn't even have that. And so for some, some reason, maybe it was an ancient tradition or otherwise, if there wasn't a synagogue, you would, you would kind of be understood. Go to the place where there's water, and, and we can kind of have some fellowship, and, and we can pray and, and, and do that. And so that's what, he, that's what happens here in Acts chapter 16. It says, uh, and where we suppose there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So there's a, a women's Bible study going on. They've just popped in their Beth Moore DVD or whatever, and they're, they're just kind of studying the Word. And, and uh, Paul and Silas are, are sitting in, and then Paul and Silas, we know, we'll see in a minute, they begin to fill in the gaps. They begin to explain things. And, and, and this is going to be the birth of the church at Philippi says this, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Now notice what it says. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So we have Lydia. She's a fashionista. She's in the fashion industry. She's a seller of purple goods. That was for royalty. That was, that was expensive stuff. She's got a house in Thyatira. We know she has a house in Philippi, maybe one in Rome. Think New York, Milan, and Paris. She's well-connected. She's educated. She's put together. She is uh, uh, smart. She's in some sense a seeker. She's rejected the pagan gods and the, the pantheon of the Roman gods. And she said, no, I 
think, I think the Jews are on to something here. She herself wasn't Jewish, but she was exploring, well, if there is a God, what is he like? And, and so she's come to this place of prayer, and she's seeking. She's, she's an intellect. And then it says, the Lord opened her heart. For what? So that she could hear the gospel. The Lord opened her heart. And we saw from the first week in Ephesians chapter 2, that's how the gospel begins to move. For any of us, the Lord has to first be the first mover before any of us respond. The Lord opens her heart. She hears the gospel. She receives the gospel in a very intellectual way. And such were some of you. That's how you came to Christ. You were you were maybe a, a, a moral person, maybe even a religious person, but it took God opening your heart to see the beauty uh, of the gospel. That's some of our stories. And, and this is how the church gets started. And after she was baptized and her whole household, so uh, her family members and her servants and their families, uh, they become Christians. And she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us, meaning uh, Paul and Silas just started, that was their base camp for the church plant in Philippi. And so she was a religious person. She was moral, but she needed Jesus. She needed someone to just explain to her. Uh, this reminds me of what's going on maybe through uh, Tim Keller's ministry in New York City where he's uh, reaching that city uh, through the intellect. He's, he's, he's writing books and, and engaging people where they're at. And so some of us, that's how we came to Christ. But then some of us are like the next person. I love that these are back-to-back. Look what happens next. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. So this girl, for whatever reason, by exploitation or her own uh, sinfulness, she's gotten to such a point where she is uh, abused, she is used, she is demon-possessed, she's given herself over to a a level of licentiousness and and just debauchery. Uh, She is totally a mess. She is totally a mess. She's demon-possessed. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these, men's are serv- these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation, which is always odd to me. This happens in Jesus' life, too, when the demons are like, hey, what he's saying is true. And, and she's like, yeah, he's telling you the truth. And, 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 and this happens apparently for a few days. She kept doing this for many days. Like, um, you're like, well, isn't, isn't she helping the cause? No, she's annoying. She's, uh, she's distracting everybody. You mean the demon-possessed girl agrees with you? Uh, I don't think we need to listen to you anymore. And she just is just kind of, yeah, boy. You know, she's just hanging out, just shouting. Like, if someone came in here and was like, what Mark said, what Mark said, you know, I'd be like, please. Uh, but I, would, I wouldn't wait a few days because uh, Paul is more patient than me. But I love the next verse. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul having become greatly annoyed, because I sometimes get greatly annoyed, that just comforts my soul, Uh, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Now, um, at that point, we don't know the rest of her story, but I am I am using some imagination, if you will. I I think she becomes the next member of the church at Philippi. 
Um, now, probably none of us came through uh, slavery and demon possession, but, but some of us came here. Uh, we, we came not as put together, well-connected, well-educated people, but as broken people, maybe given ourselves over to addictions or otherwise, and God reached in a, in a demonstration of the Spirit's power, reached us with the gospel of Jesus, he becomes a family member. So now in the family of the Church of Philippi, you've got businesswoman, well-connected Lydia. Now you've got uh, a slave girl, and now she's in her right mind. So her owners uh, are, are beside themselves. This was their source of income. And as the story progresses, they're very upset about this. And they get the, a crowd, an angry crowd, to, to, to come against Paul and Silas. And they start beating Paul and Silas to within inches of their lives. And then they get the magistrates involved. And the magistrates magistrates are like, yeah, let's beat them some more. Um, Verse 23, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. So again, I've always said, especially when we're reading narrative, we've got to read it more like... uh, more like uh, Never Ending Story, that movie. Remember that when I was a kid? Some of you, most of you know. Uh, Rather than the Wall Street Journal. Like, I think we, we come to our Bible so often and we're like, oh, well, this is information for me. But we've got to enter into the story. This is a, this is a real story. Uh, Paul and Silas did not know if they would survive the night. They were really uh, received blows from rods to their faces, to their backs, to their heads. Uh, they were in uh, agony. I've never been beaten for my faith, but they were beaten and then handed over to the jailer. Now, a jailer in the first century of Rome was probably, it was probably his retirement gig, probably a reward for being a good soldier uh, in the army of Rome. And if you know anything about Rome, Rome is not into human rights. Rome uh, was experts at, uh, at um, torture. Uh, they uh, implemented crucifixion. We get the term excruciating pain out of it. It means X out of cruciating out of the cross. There had to be a whole term invented for the level of pain the Romans could inflict on yourself. And as someone who led the army, he would have probably suffered from what we know today as PTSD. Uh, And and now he's on his retirement gig and and he has come to identify his life as as his job. He's a duty-bound Roman soldier. He's seen some stuff in his day. And he enjoys his job just a little too much because they hand Paul and Silas over to him and they say, keep them safely. So what does he do? Having received this order, verse 24, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. What's the inner prison? That would have been probably uh, down below, think dark, dank, think the prisoners up above, above relieving themselves with urine and feces coming down uh, onto them. And then it says he put them in stocks as well. And stocks were, were, were to uh, contort and twist the body in, in a painful way. It was further punishment. He's like, oh, I'll keep them safe. Come here. And, and that's what he does. And then we find Paul and Silas verse 25, about midnight. So you, you would go to bed about sun, sundown. So this is the middle of the night. About midnight, Paul and Silas were, were praying and singing hymns to God. Again, this is not always my first response when I'm uncomfortable. 
but, but they, they are praying and singing. They can't sleep. They're in stocks. It's not comfortable enough. It's dark. It's dank. So what are they doing? They're praying and, and singing hymns to God. What are they praying? We're not told. But again, let's enter the story. What would they be praying about? They would be praising God for his mercy to them. They would be praising God for Lydia and the slave girl. They would be possibly even praising God that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. They would be praying for the fellow uh, prisoners and praying for the people that beat them and praying for the city that they would come to, uh, uh, come alive to awaken to the truth of God. And it says, and the prisoners were listening to them. So, so they were, in, in some sense, through prayers and, and praises, sharing the gospel for everyone in there. And they had to be so annoying, right? right? Like other people, we just want to sleep. Quit singing. But they just keep singing and praising God and if you want to see an earthquake in the New Testament, just put one of Jesus' boys in prison, and that, ha- and that happens all the time. And so verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Okay, so um, you say, well, that's just an earthquake. I've been in a lot of earthquakes in Japan. We were in some bad earthquakes. Uh, I could see maybe a door opening up, but I never saw or heard about like, uh, um, you know, handcuffs falling off of people because of an earthquake. And this is what happened. And so what happens is when the jailer woke up and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Why? Because, again, he, he understands how Rome works. Man, I'm in charge of these prisoners. If one is, escapes, it's my life. And, I, and, and before it's my life, it's my torture. He says, I'm not going to go down that route. I'll take my life out. And so he's about to commit suicide because he thinks it's over. He is duty-bound. He's come to identify his whole purpose and meaning in life with his job. In verse 28, but... Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself. We're all here. That's unbelievable. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And they said to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved in your whole household. He had heard the gospel through their prayers and their songs. And he's like, look, you've got something that I don't have. You, you have a higher identity, a higher duty, a higher calling in life. What must I do to be saved? He gets saved. And, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night. So this may be one or two o'clock in the morning, washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his whole family. Then he brought them into the house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So he celebrates the gospel. And this is the start of the church at Philippi. Again, I didn't read this in any church planning manual. Like, find a businesswoman, a demon-possessed girl, and uh, you know, uh, someone with PTSD, and they're your church planning core team. But that's who becomes the core team. And God does that. He rescues and redeems people from all backgrounds, and he makes them a family. And this family becomes very, very dear to the heart of Paul. We're going to see it in the book of Philippians. Like This this becomes the the, the sweetest church in all the New Testament, and it starts this way with these people. 
And again, you can't plan for that. That's why I'm saying we have, to be, we have to think as missionaries and then just ask God, would you fill us? Would you lead us? Would you guide us into conversations with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and family members that we can't script, but you can work through? And so that's, that's our, our challenge. If we're saved by the gospel and shaped by the gospel, then we're sent by the gospel. If you've never in any sense, or shape, or form, shared the gospel or shared Christ with someone, one of two things is happening there. One, you don't really believe the gospel. You're not saved, I'm telling you. You're not saved if you have no concern for unsaved people. You're just not. Because if you're saved, you have the Spirit of God, and He's concerned for unsaved people. You're not saved if you don't share the gospel. I'm not saying you're, you're saved because you share the gospel. I'm saying people that are saved by the gospel and shaped by the gospel, they want to see people come to know and experience what they've experienced. And so maybe it's, it's that you are saved. You just haven't, you just, you thought maybe you didn't know. You thought that's for the professionals. If I can just get my neighbors to come to church, then, then Mark can share the gospel. But I'm telling you, 65% of Parkerites, they on the last census said, we are, have no religious affiliation whatsoever. They're not coming to church. No matter how much you, like, hey, we're going to have an Easter service. It's, it's going to be awesome. Bono's coming. You know, whatever, whatever you do is not going to be enough. We, maybe if you had Bono. Okay. But, you know, and, and by the way, like, this idea, like, if I could just get a pastor to talk to him, like, no, I'm a pastor. People are skeptical of me, right? They're like, no, you're a hired gun. You get paid to do this. I'm like, yes. I mean, I get paid to be good. You guys are good for nothing. And um, some of you will catch that later. But uh, what I'm saying is, like, just people rescued and redeemed, as, as 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Like, we're just ordinary instruments to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And so what, what do we do? Well, I think the first thing is we, we, we pray. We just say, Lord, would you, would you use my life to, to reach my neighbors? So that, that might bring a, a second conviction to your heart. I need to get to know my neighbors. <laughs> like, who lives on my right and my left and across my street? And just begin to pray for them. Like, I'm not telling you to do anything with them this week. Just pray and see if God would, would provide an opportunity even this week. Just pray. Lord, I don't know this person. Can I, can I, can I look at this as a missionary would look at it? And if I know that, if I get to know their name this week, that's a win for me? That's what we're encouraging you to do. I, I hope that just as we can look back at the book of Acts and say, man, that's a, a wild church planning team. Lydia and the slave girl and the jailer. I hope five years, 10 years from now, we can be like, remember 2017 when we, when we met and we didn't even have worship leaders? And, uh, you know, we just met in this like garage, and, but God was at work and, and there's Lydia and the slave girl and uh, uh, the jailer that came to Christ. I mean, those were wild times. Like that's my hope and my prayer. Let's believe God for that. Because God's plan to reach God's people is God's people. And there is no plan B. So for your neighbors and your friends and your family members, God's plan to reach them is you. Like, don't pray like, Lord, just bring some other Christians in the neighborhood that will finally share the, share the gospel with people. Like, no. 
In Acts chapter 17, Paul will tell, to the, tell the Athenians that God has ordained the exact times and places in which people should live so that they might seek God and find him, though he is not far from any of us. Well, what that means is God knows exactly where you live today, and you can move and, and you can go somewhere else, but for today, he knows why you live there. And if you're a redeemed follower of Christ, he's got a purpose for it. How are the 65% of the non-believers in this, this city? And that's just people that say, I am no religious affiliation. It's probably more like 90% are non-believers. How, how are they going to come to know Christ? How are your neighbors going to come to know Christ? It's not going to... I mean, God could use a church event. God, I, I would hope that you would invite people. But most likely, it's just from you saying, hey, we're grilling some hot dogs this week. Hey, we, we're going to have a poker party, so um, would you want to join us with that? Some of this, these are some of my friends from church. We're glad you came out. And, and just over time, the Spirit of God working in people's lives, that's why we want, that's why we want to make much of our neighborhoods and our, our friendships. Next week, we're going to talk about what the gospel looks like in our work and how this applies to that as well. But uh, to that end, may God give us our dreams five and ten years from now. I want to pray for us, and then we'll come to this table and remember the gospel once again through communion. God, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for that every story of redemption is a unique story. All of us uh, come to you uh, in, in some senses in the same way, by your spirit opening our hearts, bringing us from death to life, giving us ears to hear the gospel and to receive new life, but in other senses in completely different ways with different relationships but, and different encounters. But all of us can look back to the people that you put in our lives and you used for your glory and for our joy. Lord, would you use us, broken, redeemed people, to redeem broken people? Lord, we are carriers of living water in a sea of people drinking salt water to satisfy their thirst. So Lord, help us to just go out today as missionaries and to see winds as you see wins for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.